Good to have you back, Don. <laughs> um, good morning, everybody. It's cold. This is not uh, my favorite weather, the cold weather. So, Let me pray for us as we get into this. Father, we come before your throne with all due respect and honor. You know, we, we seem so... Uh, we realize that we are your children. We realize that we are adopted into your family. But we also realize you are a king. That you are the creator of the universe, of all that we are. And so we come before you with that honor. That strange mixture of you being a father, but also you being a king. And we want to learn how to worship you better. Worship you deeply, worship you holistically with every aspect of our lives. And so we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that worship would flow out of every single moment of our lives, that your word would come alive to us, that it would not only feed us, but it would transform us, and therefore it would transform others around us. We praise you that you are such a wonderful God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So this is our second week of exiles, uh, you know, a study of Israel's return to worship after they had been in exile all those years. And um, last week we said that... Uh, Returning to true worship is two things. It's volitional, and it's also rooted in a deep appreciation of the Scriptures. That when we come back and return to worship, that it can be seen in the way that we respond to the Word of God, right? The Scriptures hold an importance uh, for us in our, in our lives as believers because they point to God's action in creation. And uh, we must be willing to allow the Scriptures sort of a, a space to run free in our minds and our hearts, since in doing so, God takes the rightful place, uh, the throne of our hearts, where He is worshipped with every fiber of our being, right? And after the exile, these people in Nehemiah return sort of hungry to worship, and to, to worship God fully and correctly, Right? They, the rebuilding of the temple wall uh, afforded them the opportunity to honor God in ways which they hadn't been uh, experiencing in many, many years, right? They had lost all this. And so when God, God calls us into community centered around His Word, there is truly a reason to worship. When our hearts are committed to uh, honoring the Lord, we celebrate Him as we could never before, right? Um, and so it's nice to see in, this, in these passages that these people come and they plead for instruction. They want to be taught. The, you know, they hadn't kept the law for all these years, but now they're yearning for it, right? They want it. They're discontent with their lives and they're desiring better things. And the Word of God is where, what will bring that for them. Uh, Ezra, it says that Ezra read from the morning until midday. That's a long time if you think about it. Beginning as soon as there was light until noon or, or around noon, for six hours or more he sat there and read. 
It's varied by occasional exposition, and the ears of the people were all attentive at this moment. They were fixed on God's word. That nothing else took their attention during those times. So turn with me to page 335 in your pew Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 18. So page 335, Nehemiah 8, 9 through 18. And you can follow along as I read. Uh, And I'm going to read this piecemeal. We'll stop and say a few things in between things. Uh, It says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. (laughs) Right? So mourning apparently was unsuitable for this day of such high festivity. And this was the first day of the seventh month. It was the commencement of the civil year. It was the feast of trumpets that they were celebrating. And and it was the anniversary of the restoration of the altar. So as such, it was regarded with special interest, right? You know, when my kids were around three years old, oftentimes they would be crying. uh, At certain moments, they would be crying about something that they really didn't need to be crying about. You know, kids get really all wound up, you know, and they start just bawling, and you're like, and Kim and I would say, you know, okay, stop, all right, stop, you know, just, this is not a time for crying, you don't need to be crying right now, and you know, you watch them, they're like, okay, okay, dad, okay, okay, dad, and they would kind of choke it back, and then in seconds, they'd be laughing and smiling, right, sometimes we just need to be jolted out of our despair, to be told, this is not a time for mourning, This is a time for celebration, right? Continuing in verse 10, it says, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. There's a nod in there to the care of the need, uh, the care of those in need and always a part of Hebrew life and worship to care for people that don't have and that should be in our Christian tradition now as well. Verse 11, the, the Levites calmed the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They now understood the words that had been made known to them. When the Word of God is understood, it results in worship. It really does. Because it's not about knowledge. It's not about just religiosity. It's not just about tradition and things like that. But with understanding the Word of God comes connection with God in relationship. When understanding comes from the Word of God, there comes connection with God in relationship, right? There's something profound. You know, you don't know somebody until they speak to you. And we have to let God speak to us. And this is how he speaks to us in a large part. Verse 13, on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the the festival of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches 
uh, uh, from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. I'll just stop there. And we do live in a heavily Jewish uh, area, especially Balakinwood and that direction. And even around uh, Haverford College, if you walk that college, you'll see some of the homes there have these little structures built in the backyard. That's what these are. It's the, the Festival of Booze, the Festival of Tabernacles. And it's there. They, just keep, they usually just keep them up all year, and then they cover them during the celebration. So that's what we're talking about. So the people went out, and they brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in their courtyards in the, in the courts of the house of God in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israel, Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and, the joy, and their joy was very, was very great. Uh, verse 18, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly, period. We're done with the passage, right? The people were reverent. They were attentive. They were persistent in this renewed worship. They wanted to be there from, for some six hours Every day they kept their places listening, right? Raising their hands, you know, proclaiming amen, amen, and then sometimes falling on their faces in worship. You know what amen means, right? Does anybody know what it means? Let it be, right? Let it be, let it be. That's what they're actually saying. They began sorrowful in recognizing their own conduct in light of the law, as they compared themselves to the law, understanding the promise of blessing once largely enjoyed by the nation years past, they had forfeited due to their sin. They are being repentant, in other words. They have experienced the consequences which produce grief, and grief sometimes is very good for our souls, right? But the exhortations of Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites assuage their sorrow and induce the celebration that this, this festival was designed to bring. So sorrow turns to joy since they understood the words that the law declared to them. They were getting to know their God again, right? Filling them with thankfulness. The law and their history, which they are relearning, re-experiencing, reveal to them that God is gracious and forgiving and He's still with them and He still loves them. Kim and I watched every single season of Alone. I don't know if you've ever watched Alone, but it's this, this uh, show where they take 10 people and they stick them out. My kids were all trying to get me to apply for it. They thought I could win it. But, but uh, they take 10 people and they stick them out in the wilderness all by themselves in different places, miles and miles apart from each other. And they're allowed to pick 10 items from a pre-approved list to uh, survive out there, like a knife, a tarp, a fire starter, a bow and arrow maybe, stuff like that. And they build their own shelter, and they hunt, and they fish, and they, you know, get all their own food. They gather their own food. Uh, each one's provided a sat phone to tap out if they can't take it anymore, or if they get sick or whatever. And the last one remaining out there alone in the wilderness gets a boatload of money, right? It's a big pile of money. And, uh, be, but it's interesting to watch the show because in being deprived of the basics, and in struggling to survive, they do become extremely weighty and sorrowful, in a sense, 
They get, they get, they get down. They, they start to miss their families. They get really, you know, emotionally down. But as days go without food, and then suddenly they, ca- they catch something or they trap something or they, they shoot something with their bow and arrow or whatever it is, they enter this elated state of thankfulness. They're just overjoyed. There's one woman who she was like fishing in a lake and she cut, cut a hole with her axe in the lake and she catches this fish and she, I'm, I think she wet her pants. I mean, she was just jumping all over the place. But typically what they do is they look up at the sky and they say, thank you, thank you. And it's so worshipful. That's worship, right? Spiceless meals of boiled fish in a pot or a char-grilled squirrel over a fire is suddenly the best meal you've ever had in your life, right? When you are deprived of something for so long and you finally have it again, you appreciate it really greatly, right? Israel has been scattered for years. Think on that. Imagine that. Without direction, starved of nourishment from God's word. They haven't had this. Now they've come back together. But this is more like the ending of Alone, when they can go back with their families and sit around the dinner table and eat all their favorite foods and laugh and celebrate with each other, since this is a time of celebration with their greater family of Israel. You know, we had all been shut down due to COVID, right? We had been scattered, in a sense, to our own homes. You'd think that uh, everyone would return here to worship with a thankfulness for, which, for that which they had been deprived of, right? Some did. Some are glad to be back. Some are glad to hear the, the, the Word of God preached and to sing praises alongside brothers and sisters. I'm glad for that. That's great. That's wonderful. But many over that time decided, I don't really miss church that much. I really don't miss it. And they never returned. They stayed in exile, so to speak. They assimilated into culture. They shedded the mantle and the identity of Christ, just as the northern tribes of Israel did when they were lost and to the surrounding cultures. And others trickled back slowly to church, but with this dampening apathy, so heavy they might as well have stayed home, right? In In the book Heavenly Man, Brother Yoon, if I say his name correctly, tells a time of when he was in a Chinese prison with only, uh, he, he had his legs were broken, he couldn't walk, um, you know, he, he was in bad shape. And there was only one other Christian in, uh, by the name of, I, I think it's Zhu in the prison at the time, uh, X-U, Jack, how do you say that, X-U, that name, Zhu? Oh, well, I'll, I'll say Zhu, because <laughs> that's harder. Um, but anyway, this guy, this other guy, was tasked with carrying Yoon to the prison every, or to the bathroom like a few times a day. And it was a three-minute walk there to the bathroom and, and back. And so he would carry him, and they would talk Scripture, and they would pray together, and they would just encourage each other. And those were the times that sustained him during prison, right? They worshiped together. Thankful worship among brothers for three-minute walks kept him alive and going during that time. In the book, Insanity of God, the author speaks of being at a secret conference in China 
um, attended by pastors where he noticed that someone was tearing out large sections of the Bible and handing it to the pastors. He was appalled that somebody would rip the Bible up. He was like, he'd never seen that before, and I would have a hard time doing it, right? I think most of us would, until he found out that very few of the pastors had a full Bible back where they were from. They only had little bits and pieces, a page here, a page there, maybe one, one book of the Bible or whatever. And one of the goals of that conference was to send every pastor back to their hometown with at least one full book of the Bible, like Galatians, you know, or Romans or something like that. And so they were all so extremely thankful and grateful for this gift. It was like their boiled fish or their char-grilled whatever squirrel thing, right? There are at least five lessons that we can learn or glean from this passage Firstly, we see the worth and the power of God as the enduring spring of life, right? That revival always springs from the, from the Word of God, from its truth, right? Secondly, we see the necessity and the value of teachers, I'm not saying this because I am one, but teachers whose goal it is to bring understanding, giving the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, an avenue to work in our lives, Because sad to say, for some of us, without good teachers, the Bible would just remain on the shelf or remain a dead letter, right? Thirdly, we see the importance of public gatherings, of instruction and worship. And that everyone, along with their children, should make them top priority in life. They really should. Fourthly, we see the conditions of obtaining benefit at such gatherings, right? That there's a desire in these people to learn. There's a reverence. There's attention given. There's a surrender of the heart to the power of truth. And by the way, if you don't sense that in your life, that is something that you can pray for, right? If you sense that you've lost your desire, ask God to renew your desire, right? Your desire to worship, your desire to understand and dig into the Word. Ask Him for that desire, and He will fill you up with it. And fifthly, we see the conflicting emotions that are awakened in us by God's divine Word. We get both sorrow and joy and a bunch of things in between, don't we? But we must come expectant to worship together, right? Finding freedom not found anywhere else, It is only through this that we find true freedom. At times we need others to say to us, no tears today. Today is a time of celebration. Today is a time of worship, right? You know, as the exiles had finally given space to the Lord to speak to him, honor to the Lord, right? Nehemiah calls them to a day of celebration. He says, go, enjoy the Lord, enjoy his provision, which we're going to do tonight with a bunch of Afghans. By the way, let me just stop there for a minute and tell you that we have had really good conversations with some of these people, and they are very excited to come and share this time with us. We've had some people really ask me, what, the, what is the gospel? What do you mean? I'd like to come to your church. So be praying for them. They, you know, this is their first time in this diff, very different world, and they, they might actually want to, to see what we believe and understand it and hopefully make that decision to follow Jesus. But... Um, you know, while it may not be appropriate to celebrate all the time, we know that, it's, it is good to hear Nehemiah's call to, to the people to enjoy the Lord on this day of worship, right? 
Sometimes our hearts are just so heavy when we come to worship. We need to hear the Lord speak from his word. We need him to encourage our hearts. And this is what happened to those who gathered to hear Ezra speak and have the word of God touch their hearts, transform them, right? Gathering again in earnest desire to hear more of God's word, being reminded of God's expectations to celebrate these annual festivals for very good reason, because they were teaching them something. And it's important to understand the significance of participating in the next step of renewal, which was the reinstating of that Feast of Tabernacles or that Feast of Booths that I talked about. It was a time of joyous celebration as the Israelites celebrated God's continued provision for them uh, in the current harvest, and they remembered also His provision and His protection during the whole 40 years in the wilderness. That's what they were celebrating. And many of those people present at that moment knew it only as a story in the past. They had never practiced this. It's kind of like one of us becoming aware of the significance of baptism or communion for the very first time and experiencing it for the first time in our lives. What, what a difference that would make, right? The, the exiles are being welcomed again into God's grand sort of narrative uh, that he had called their ancestors into. And he was affirming his promises as still true for them, that he was still there. And it's amazing how when the scriptures come alive to us, our whole countenance changes. Something in us changes. Michael Yusuf says it this way. He says, only through the preaching of God's word can we know the God who is revealed in his word. Whenever the words taught, read, or preached, Jesus steps out of the pages of the book and we meet him face to face. And when we meet Jesus, he transforms our lives. If we want revival in our lives, in our churches, and in our nation, we must begin by assembling together around God's word, and we must affirm the authority of his word over every aspect of our lives. And that last line, I think, is so important because so many people are giving up on the authority of God's word, right? We cannot worship God as he intends unless we allow him to transform us via his word. We need to change our minds in order to change our actions, right? If we're, you know, how, there must be more than just a reading of the Bible for this transformation to happen, though. I mean, it's not just that you, you sit down to do an a, like an academic exercise. You're interacting with the, the living Word of God, right? Jen Wilkin wrote, wrote this great article listing five flawed ways uh, to study God's Word, and she begins by quoting John Piper Uh, where he said, when all your favorite preachers are gone and all their books forgotten, you will have your Bible. Master it. Master it. That's great advice, right? We oftentimes let people speak for us too often, right? She says she often meets with people that are curious about how to study the Bible, that they're hungering for this elusive transformation in their lives. They just can't get it. And although they've spent years in church, years in Bible studies, their grasp on the fundamentals of how to approach God's Word is either weak or non-existent. Unless we are taught good study habits, few of us develop them naturally. We really don't. 
But there's no deficit in the power of God's Word. It's right there for us. If exposure to it doesn't transform us over the years, then there are only two possibilities. One is Bible studies lack true converts. In other words, you have not met Jesus yet. You have not been given the Holy Spirit to to break open the Word of God to you. Or converts lack true Bible study. And I think the second reason is probably much more accurate. Much of what passes for Bible study is not Bible study. Right? While it may educate us on doctrine or a topic, it does little to further our biblical literacy. Left to our own devices, we uh, pursue unhelpful and self-constructed approaches that are just not very good. Here's a list of her five from the article. I like them. She says, first she, the first she calls is, is the Xanax approach. Feel anxious, she says. Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Feel ugly, Psalm 139 says, Fear, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Feel tired, Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Jesus will give rest to the weary. Now, this approach treats the Bible as if it exists to make us feel better, right? You know, aided by our devotional books and or the topical index, we pronounce our time in the Word successful only if we can walk away saying, wow, that really touched me, right? Oh, that really touched me. It made me feel better. But the problem is, this approach makes the Bible all about us, asking, asking how the Bible is going to serve us rather than how we can serve the God that it proclaims. Actually, the Bible doesn't always make us feel better either. Quite often, it does just exactly the opposite. Some of us feel pretty highly of ourselves. We feel pretty awesome about ourselves. Well, maybe that person needs to read Jeremiah 17.9 that says, your heart is deceitful above all else and be taken down a few notches, right? There's comfort in Scripture for sure, but context is what makes comfort lasting and real. This approach guarantees huge sections of the Bible will remain unread, We will never approach them because they fail to deliver that dose of emotional satisfaction to us. We have our favorite, you know, little little passages, right? Then she uh, describes the pinball approach, lacking any sort of uh, preference or guidance about, you know, what to read. We read whatever scripture we happen to turn to at the moment. Releasing the sort of the, the plunger of your good intentions, you send that pinball in there, you know, sort of... Uh, hurtling around you, you know, to whatever passage it may hit, ricocheting to various passages as the Spirit leads you. You, know, you have to say as the Spirit leads you because then you're spiritual, right? The problem is the Bible wasn't uh, written, written to be read this way, right? This approach gives no thought to cultural or historical or textual context or authorship or original intent of the author Uh, or the passage in question, and when we read it this way, we treat the Bible with less respect than we would give some some sort of a textbook. Imagine trying to uh, master algebra just by randomly reading for 10 minutes, you know, in whatever part you open up your textbook to every day, you know, your eyes, you know, whatever your eyes fall on, you would lose momentum fast, and you would suck at algebra. (laughs) You would just, you would never get it. And then I don't know if you younger folks, I don't know if they still have them, but we had those little 
eight ball things. Remember those little eight ball things? You shook it, and then there was a little window, and you looked in there, and you got your fortune. They still have those things? Looking at younger people, yeah. They still have them. I don't know. I, I just, but anyway, but that's the, the magic eight ball approach. We, we have that one as well, right? Uh, that thing answered your questions when you were eight years old, but you're an adult wondering if you're going to get married to that person, or you should get that new job, or or you should change your hair color, or whatever, or you buy that car, or whatever, and you give your Bible a vigorous shake, and, and you open it up to a random page, placing your finger blindly on a verse, hoping that it will, it, it points to yes, you know, in, in some, some instances, or no, maybe, who, whatever, but the Bible is not magic. It's not magic. It doesn't serve our whims. The, this approach misconstrues the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Demanding that the Bible tell us what to do rather than who to be, right? It's dangerously close to soothsaying, and we used to stone people for that, right? Then you have the personal shopper approach. You want to know about being a godly person or how to deal with self-esteem issues, but you don't know where to find the verses, so you let your favorite preacher do all the legwork for you. You know, it's, it, it is tiring for us preachers to hear people say, oh, I was listening to so-and-so the other day, and I was listening to so-and-so the other day, and you're like, okay, whatever, you know. It's just, you know, we always go. We go to someone else instead of just going to the Word ourselves. And that, is, that approach does not help you build ownership in the Word of God yourself. Much like the pinball approach, we ricochet around, we gain fragmentary knowledge of Many books of the Bible, we master none of them, right? Some people spend years just studying one book of the Bible, right? Topical studies serve a purpose for sure, but they help us to integrate broad concepts into our understanding of Scripture. But they are all, if they're all we do, uh, we're missing out on the richness of learning a book from the Bible from start to finish, really delving into it. And I would add, this approach doesn't take into account the local church, the local church community where, where you're known, you're being known, and you, you, you have shared context and goals, and how does the, the word apply to that? You listen to Joe Schmo preaching from, you know, California or the UK, he's not in your context. He's not in your context, right? We want to hear God speak to us from his word in our context, Right? Then you have the Jack Spratt approach. This is where we engage in picky eating with the Word. We read the New Testament, you know, uh, but other than the Psalms and the Proverbs, we avoid the Old Testament altogether. And we read books with characters and, uh, you know, plots or topics we, we can identify with, but we largely don't, don't read the Old Testament. But the problem is that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Women, it is time to get beyond Esther and Ruth and Psalm 31, right? And have the rest of the meal. All of us, we can't appreciate the sweetness of the New Testament without the savory of the old. We need to know this story. We need a balanced diet of the scriptures to grow to maturity. Why do all these sort of bad habits, uh, these highly ineffective Bible study habits exist? Why does Bible ignorance continue despite the good intentions of leadership you know, to go and make disciples, to get us there, right? Well, the answer lies in our definition of a disciple. 
A disciple is literally a learner. It's a learner, right? One who follows another's teaching. But the modern church has tended to define disciple as a doer instead of a learner, right? We've, we've been asked to do service projects, to join home groups, to get counseling, to fix our marriages, to join the worship team, get out of debt, help in the nursery, go on missions trips, give finances, and share the gospel, right? I just, I just did three weeks on that, right? But we've so rarely been challenged to pursue the most fundamental element of discipleship, and that is earnest study of the Word. That's where we are transformed the most. Yes, a disciple does things. Yes, we do things. Yes, God asks us to go, to go and share the gospel. But actions must be motivated for, uh, out of love for the God that is revealed in His Word. So stop waiting for others to call you to be what Christ has already called you to be, right? Be a good student of the Scriptures. Read repetitively. Read in context. Read line by line. Keep Jesus at the center of your reading. Strive for comprehension before interpretation. Give application ample time to emerge from a passage. That's why I, you know, I just disagree with this whole thing that every sermon has to have an application point. I just don't believe that because the scriptures are much more alive than that. They, they have to marinate. We have to marinate in them. They have to like emerge out of us. It's more philosophy than it is some practical application sometimes, right? If I just give you a list of to-dos, you really won't wrestle with it, right? You'll just get it done, and then that'll be it. Watch ignorance flee, though, and transformation flourish as you study the Word well. Like John Piper, master it. Master it, right? Something happens when we're willing to entrust our minds to the study of Scripture, allowing God to move freely within us. You know, our, our worship comes alive. We start to see what we were missing. Every one of us is prone to wander. And as a result, when we return, we'll find a newness in life if we let God speak to us through His Word. Since worship is volitional, it's by choice, and it's rooted in a deep appreciation of Scripture. And I'm going to pray and not give you application. No, that whole thing was application. Study your Bible. Father God, we thank you for this. We thank you that, you know, we see these stories of people that had just walked away, had lived for themselves for so many years, had, had just gone out there and just not, you know, really, not really uh, thought much about you. And then you draw them back in. You welcome them back in. You, you pull them back together. And suddenly they realize they have a family. They have a father who loves them, who cares for them, and has been caring for them all the time. Lord, I pray that we would see our lives as that underneath your umbrella, that everything that we are, say, and do, everything we think and feel is under the umbrella of your love and your your purpose, and everything else in this life. We pray that we would see you both intimately as a father, but also honorably as a king. 
worthy of our respect, worthy of our worship, worthy of our time and attention. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We want to open the mic up a little bit and we want to pray for our Alpha course. Uh, if, if the Lord lays it on your heart, I think uh, Natalie's going to play the light guitar in the background or something. Just come on up and, and pray for our Alpha course. Pray also for tonight, this Thanksgiving dinner. Just pray that God would open up doors for us to see people come to Christ, all right? And um, I will start it, and then I'm going to sit down, and if you feel like coming up and praying for that, go ahead and do that. Father, we thank you that you are giving us these opportunities to love on people, to care for them. We, uh, we practically want to do these things, feeding people, driving them to work, or driving them to the grocery store when they don't know English and they don't know how to survive, um, we thank you for those opportunities. We thank you for the opportunities that we have with our friends that we can invite to the Alpha Course in January. We, just, we don't want to just do these things as sort of fun times together. We want to do them for the purpose of seeing people's hearts change, that they would find salvation in you. Bring them in, Father God, and unpack the word for them in only the way that you can. We thank you for that.